Hey all you rad dads out there. Hey what's up everyone, Rad Dad Brett here bringing you another episode of the Rad Dads Show. On this episode I had the pleasure of chatting with Wabgishig Rice, who actually came onto the Rad Dads radar through our pals over at Unscripted Moments, a podcast about propaganda, which is one of the podcasts I listen to absolutely religiously. Wob was on their show as a guest, and then Greg, one of the hosts, who's been a big supporter of ours and was also a guest on our show, put in a good word for us with Wob. So here we are, and I couldn't be more excited. Wob was a broadcaster for many years, but more recently has become well-known as an author, particularly for his incredible book, Moon of the Crusted Snow, which tells the story of a Northern Ontario Anishinaabe community facing the apocalypse. Wob himself is of mixed Canadian settler and Anishinaabe heritage, and in his book, he draws on his own experiences and upbringing growing up on Wasaksing First Nation. Of course, this is the Rad Dads show, and Wob is also a dad to two boys, Chiquis and Iabe. And we talked about how he incorporates his heritage and traditions into his parenting, and how he and his family prioritize remaining connected to his community, despite now living in Sudbury. Wob also tells us about the two very different experiences he had as his children came into the world, one of which was quite traumatic and stuck with him for a long time afterwards. We also talked about the role names can play in remaining connected to your family and culture, and of course we talked about music and community and so much more. Wob's love for his children really comes through in this interview, and I'm so happy to be able to share it with you. So without further delay, let's get into it. Here's Wob Gishig Rice on the Rad Dad Show. I'm going to sort of start the way we always do, and that's by asking, who are you? Ani, bonjour. Hi, everybody. My name is Wabagijik Rice. I'm a member of the Bear Clan of the Nishnabek of Wasaxing First Nation. That's on Georgian Bay near Perry Sound, Ontario. I'm of mixed Anishinaabe and Canadian descent, and I currently live in Sudbury, Ontario, which is the traditional territory of Atikamekshing and Anishinaabek. This place is also known as Swakamuk, and the lands where I currently reside and I am originally from are under the Robinson-Huron Treaty of 1850, and that is, of course, a treaty that predates Canadian Confederation. And uh, I am a dad, I'm an author, uh, freelance uh, journalist, and I live here with my wife, Sarah, and our two sons, Jiquis and Iabe. And uh, yeah, just super stoked to uh, join you. And uh, just side note, my friends call me Wob for short, and you may as well. Okay, awesome. Thank you. Um, yeah, I appreciate that introduction. Y- you, I think, had uh, up until very recently... Uh, a journalism career is that right and then uh, are you still doing that uh, I, I more or less do it on the side I worked in broadcasting for almost 20 years uh, mostly at CBC uh, I graduated from the university formerly known as Ryerson or soon to be formerly known as Ryerson in Toronto back in 2002 uh, and I worked uh, freelance for a couple of years in Toronto um, I started working part-time at the weather network as a news writer and as a TV reporter uh, and eventually an opportunity came up at CBC in Winnipeg in 2006 and that's sort of where my CBC journey began. I worked there for four years then moved back to Ontario to work in Toronto at CBC there for a summer and then I moved to Ottawa uh, in the fall of 2010 and I worked there for seven years as a video journalist uh, which is essentially a TV reporter that shoots and edits their own stories. Cool. Um, And that's where I met my wife 
and our first son, Jequis, was born there in 2016. And uh, we had our sights set on Sudbury for a while, my wife and I, because we are both sort of from the area. Sudbury is kind of a midpoint between our home communities. She uh, grew up in the Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario area. Her, okay. uh, her lineage goes back to Garden River First Nation. Um, so, yeah, I, I worked here in Sudbury uh, mostly as a radio reporter, but then eventually as a radio host for the afternoon show called Up North, uh, which covers all of Northern Ontario. Uh, but I left uh, my full-time job at CBC in May of last year to work primarily on fiction. And that's mostly because I had some great opportunities come up uh, in terms of the literary world and um, decided to sort of take that plunge. As CBC uh, is colloquially known as the mothership internally. So okay. when people leave, they say uh, they jumped off the mothership, right? So, um, yeah, so I've been working as uh, as an author primarily for the past year and a half, but also dipping in and out of freelance journalism, um, occasional work for CBC, you know, other publications in Canada as well. Okay. And your dad, how mm. old are your kids? Our older son, Jequis, will be turning five in December, and our younger son, Yabe, is about 16 months. So okay. he was born in June of 2020, sort of a couple months into the pandemic. And sorry, is it pronounced Iabe? Iabe, yeah. Iabe. Mm -hmm. Okay, right on. Uh, so pandemic baby. So that's yeah, an interesting experience. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was interesting in the beginning. Well, it was like, it was really special, you know, um, because it sort of really gave us um, a hyper focus of that experience once again, you know, because we were so internalized here at home. Uh, and excited about welcoming him here, you know, and this was during like um, the first months of the pandemic when mm -hmm. things were just so mysterious and confusing. Right. So yeah. it gave us something, I think, really to look forward to, uh, despite all that mystery. And um, here in Sudbury back then, uh, there weren't that many cases. So um, there weren't huge restrictions in the hospital. So I was able to go into the delivery room and, yeah. and meet him before his arrival. So um, it was great. Yeah, it was a huge um I guess moment, obviously, you know, our second child is being born, but like to have it happen during the pandemic at, at its beginning uh, was pretty intense at the same time, but in a good way. Right. And yeah, you've got that time to almost sort of that permission from the world to like focus on. Yeah on family at that time, right? I've kind of heard that from a few people who um, had children during the pandemic that, well, first of all, there's that thing where you just had a new baby and you're, you know, cautious about who's coming around and are they cleaning their hands and all that yeah. kind of stuff. That would have been sort of like, um, yeah, hi hyper real at that time. Yeah. Um, but then to be able to just focus, right, is mm -hmm. kind of kind of a neat, unique experience for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And also it was shortly after I left my full-time job at CBC. So I had a little bit more flexibility in my schedule cool. just to be with my wife and our older son. Uh, and because like it was right at the start of summer, the weather was good. So whenever we had visitors, we could just go in the backyard and, you know, take precautions that way. Um, yeah. yeah, it was, it was a good time for sure. How's the transition from one to two been? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Man, it's uh, it's so funny because so many other parents, I wouldn't say warned me and us, but, you know, 
uh, kindly advised us about the big shift that we were about to get into. Uh, but it is major. Um, having two is uh, an entirely different ball game, and of course, it's been hugely challenging. But rewarding at the same time because they're at the ages now where they're really starting to develop their relationship with each other mm-hmm. as brothers, cool. and and you're seeing them, you know. Um, really be mindful of each other and really start to care about each other, but also, you know, start to annoy each other as little kids do, mm-hmm. uh, which is like entertaining for me to see because, you know, I had younger brothers too. And, and I'm, I'm sort of seeing that uh, dynamic unfold at the same time, but yeah, man, having two is, is, is hard. It's a challenge, but you know, you just got to take the the blessings and rewardings uh, on the other hand of that. Yeah, for sure. It's keeping that perspective, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Seeing through that challenge, right? Yeah. Um, so I kind of want to pick up on something you mentioned about sort of getting to go to the hospital with the birth of your second child. You documented the birth of your first son, Jequis, mm-hmm. and that that was a bit of sort of a challenging event that happened so maybe for anyone who hasn't kind of read that i i read through it on your website would you mind sort of sharing a little bit about what that experience was like and maybe how it was different with your second son oh yeah yeah i'd be happy to well uh, our first son was born under uh, very dire circumstances um his pregnant, my wife's pregnancy up until, you know, this pretty traumatic moment was very good. You know, she was progressing in a very healthy way. Her midwife was very pleased with how things were going. Um, and then uh, one night, uh, this was about a month before her due date. Um, she wasn't feeling that well. Uh, she was up in the night, you know, having, you know, an upset sort of stomach and just, you know, um, just generally not feeling great. So we got up the next morning and uh, she had, fortunately, coincidentally, um, a midwife's appointment that morning. Um, So she's like, yeah, I'm not really feeling good at all. And I said, well, do you want me to take you to the midwife? And she said, no, I think I can handle it. So um, she went, drove over to the the clinic and I went to work at CBC and I was covering a story at a hotel downtown and, um, you know, shooting some interviews and I put my phone away. And then after I was done shooting, I went back to get my phone and, you know, I had all these missed calls and uh, it was both, you know, the midwife's office and my work because they've been trying to reach me through work. Mm. And what had happened was uh, she had a seizure while she was in the midwife's oh, office my goodness. and uh, ambulance had to come and take her to the hospital, which was fortunately just a few blocks away um, in Ottawa. Uh, so they said, you know, come down to the hospital right away. You know, she's collapsed, you know, something's going on. And I went down there and um, I went to the ER uh, because I thought that's where they would have her. But I didn't realize that they'd taken her right up to this sort of uh, maternity ward right away. Mm-hmm. Right. So sort of waiting around the ER trying to figure out what was going on. And they couldn't locate her within the system. Right. Uh, because they didn't really have time to process her. They just took her right up to, to the place. So after I think 15 or 20 minutes, um, finally, like the midwife's office called me again. They're like, where are you? And I said, well, I've been waiting here in the ER um, to see what's going on. And they said, oh, you got to go up to the fourth floor of the maternity ward. Uh, so I said, OK. And, and they said, yeah, um, she's up there with your son. And it was like, wow. oh my God, you know, like, uh, and, and it was just, it was like that sort of cliched kind of movie moment where everything goes into slow motion. Right. Yep. And I, I stood up in the waiting room of the ER, uh, asked where the elevator was, walked down the hall and like, everything was just, you know, my mind was just swirling. 
And I took the elevator up to the fourth floor and uh, there was a whole team of like doctors and nurses there. And I was like, oh, this cannot be good at all. Uh, but they were all very kind and, and very helpful and careful with how they explained it to me. And, and they just basically told me the whole thing that uh, she ended up with a serious spell of high blood pressure, mm -hmm. um, which is eclampsia. And as a result, um, she had a seizure and then the baby's heart rate began to drop. Um, so they took her in for an emergency C-section right away. Um, so uh, it was a huge shock to learn all of this. Um, and I didn't really like, I wasn't really able to process it at the same time. So uh, they're like, well, your son's in this room. Do you want to come see? Yeah. I was like, well, this is the last thing I expected to do today. Right. <laughs> yeah, sure. Let's go see my son. Um, so they took me into like the, I guess, one of the recovery rooms. And there he was, you know, on, on, on a table, you know, the metal table. Uh, and they're like, no, we got to get him into the ICU right away. Um, just wanted to show you. And just, you know, it was sort of like shock after shock throughout the yeah. rest of the day you know like my wife sarah had to go into the icu too she had to be intubated and everything oh my goodness and, um yeah so it was just a really really um traumatic event you know mm -hmm. um but fortunately you know I, the as the day progressed things got better um they both had to stay in the hospital for about a week uh you know recovering from this moment um so it, it it was it was rough absolutely um it was really hard and uh i really didn't i guess grasp the post-traumatic stress that I was living with for about a year after that. Right. Mm -hmm. So I eventually went to counseling, um, Good. about a year, you know, when his first birthday was coming up, you know, I just had a lot of like spells of, I guess some anxiety. I'm not really necessarily sure what it was I was feeling, uh, but it wasn't great. Um, so I made an appointment to see a counselor and we'd be, we moved to Sudbury by that point. And, uh, yeah, this counselor was able to help me move through, you know, that trauma that I'd endured and, yeah. um, how that's the birthday, you know, what was supposed to be a joyous monumental event for us was, uh, triggering me, you know? Right. Um, but, you know, we, you know, we worked through it. Uh, my wife, obviously very supportive. She was the one obviously who almost died. It was obviously worse for her because right. physically she had to endure this, uh, crisis, this medical crisis. Um, and, and our son, you know, he, he, he knows now like what happened. Um, I don't think it really impacts him either way at this point. Like maybe when he's older, he'll sort of wrap his head around the seriousness of that event. Mm -hmm. Um, so, having this recent birth of our second guy was like totally different <laughs> because everything went really well. And, you know, my wife had a great medical team, like a midwife and a doctor here in, in Sudbury um, who were well aware of what happened last time and wanted to mitigate any potential risks with the second birth. Um, but everything went well. Um, and uh, for me, it was like, you know, <laughs> I don't want to say it wasn't emotional. Of course, it was like really happy and really exciting to welcome our second son. But like I had so many other emotions that I had to resolve yeah. with our first son that like the, I guess the novelty of, of a first child was already gone. So I was able to like, you know, I was excited. Yeah, <laughs> I was like, wow, this is 
so cool to be able to witness this event, you know, this, this birth of our son. So I think I was like, um, very keen and very eager just to, you know, be there, uh, may have been annoying for my wife because I was like, Oh, you know, here he comes, you know, blah, blah, blah. Meanwhile, she's like pushing away. Right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, it was, it was much more relaxed compared to the first time, but, uh, you know, still it, it's interesting to have both of those experiences. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like those, those, those sort of hard things really fade over time, you know, especially the more you're able to talk about them. Um, and also as you see your children flourish, you know, as you see them grow and, and be healthy and happy and so on, you know, it's like, okay, these are the moments to really hang on to. And the ones that we endured and, you know, they survived are sort of, are, are sure noteworthy, of course, but we have these, this wide future to look forward to, you know? So. Right. Like, look, for his entry into the world, it was sort of so traumatic for everybody. And then to look five years later and see, well, it's just, you know, happy, normal yeah. playing child, right? It's it's such a weird thing. It As is. I read through your, because I read through your story on your website too, we had a very similar experience, me and my wife. So we have two children as well. First one, very traumatic kind of experience in the beginning. She's totally fine now. Both of them are fine. Um, but my second daughter was, you know, totally uneventful. And I agree with you. Like, I, I felt like the whole time I was just on edge, like just waiting for the shoe to drop here. Like, when's it going to get into crisis mode here again? And it just wasn't that. So, um, in some ways, I felt like it was almost hard to be totally present there because I'm just kind of, you know, so stressed and, and worried. But yeah, um, yeah, it's amazing that you sort of, you know, you carry that with you, mm -hmm. right? And slowly does get better over time. So yeah, what's, what's also interesting, too, is like you meet other dads who, who have experienced that, like right now, we're discussing yeah. that moment, right? And you sort of realize how not necessarily common, but um, how slightly ubiquitous it can be, yep. you know, to experience traumatic birth, you know. Um, but like, I think for men, there's really no sort of manual to go through that, right. you know, like, I remember being in the hospital and, and thinking, like, I got to talk to people about this. Um, but like, do I just call my buddies, you know, like, yeah, I remember being in the cafeteria at the hospital in Ottawa, thinking, you know, like, do I burden someone with this? You know, I'm going through a really rough time. And all all my friends are called, I called, were all very supportive, you know, the ones who are dads and the ones who weren't. And uh, I was really thankful for that. But I think it's really positive to have these discussions now. And I think the more that um, parents in general realize how, how major these events can be, you know, that's, that's great for awareness, right? Yeah, I think there's like a, a thing. I don't know if you sort of felt that way at all. And we can talk a little bit about maybe support um, in your family and your community and stuff like that. Um, I want to talk about that. But I do think that there's kind of this, um, I don't know what it is, at least for me, you kind of feel like I need to figure this out on my own. Like I'm a parent, this should come really easy to me. It should be totally yeah. natural. I should be able to figure this out. And I think in reality, when you talk to other parents, you realize, no, we're all just kind of floundering and nobody <laughs> yeah. knows what to do. So it's, yeah, I agree with you. Having these conversations is so helpful. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so um, let's let, this is a rad dad show. So I want to ask you, and I, I, um, we had kind of had a funny exchange on Twitter about it, but I want to ask you, do you consider yourself a rad dad? Um, I would hope I, I would be a rad dad. <laughs> 
it, it, it depends on like the context of rad in today's sense you know um i asked my son if he thought i was rad and i had to explain to him of course what rad meant and i said well it kind of means cool do you think i'm a cool dad and he said no <laughs> <laughs> um so i don't know like uh it's going to be interesting to see what um, our kids consider is rad or cool as they grow up. How old are your kids, by the way, Brett? So um, I have a, my youngest daughter is two, just about three. And my oldest daughter is five, just about six. Okay, right on. Cool. Do so, they think you're rad or? You know, I, I'm not sure. I mean, I think, <laughs> I think my youngest daughter, she probably has no concept of what, what that means. I think, well, this is an interesting question. So everybody defines rad a little bit differently. So maybe I'll, I'll, let me flip it back to you. Sure. How do you define rad? What's a rad dad to you? Well, you know, I think a rad dad is someone who listens to interesting music. Uh, maybe someone who can play music too, um, but doesn't necessarily ha have to have music connected to it. Maybe someone who is, I guess, connected to some sort of subculture or counterculture. Um, maybe not necessarily mainstream, uh, maybe punk rock, maybe heavy metal, uh, maybe underground hip hop, you know, all those things I think are rad. Um, I guess to not necessarily push against conventions, but to sort of be adjacent to them and do your own thing at the same time, right? So, so it's like individuality. Yeah, individuality, kind of, exactly. Yeah. It's kind of what it is. So like bringing yourself as a person into being a parent, is that kind yeah. of what it is? Yeah, I think so. I think, um, yeah, of course, because they're like guides you can read. There's advice you can get from other parents. Um, there are shows you can watch and so on. And of course, a lot of those things are common sense. And a lot of them are rooted in raising happy and healthy kids, which is what we all want to do and should do. Right. But yeah, being rad, I think, involves injecting a little bit more of your personality into it. And I think showing kids that, you know, there are other options for their interests, whether it be music or even sports or um, culture, whatever else, outside of what, you know, they may be exposed to, like in the mainstream school system or on mainstream TV or on the radio or whatever mm -hmm. else, right? So I think like I've always existed outside of those things, you know, being a Anishinaabe guy who grew up on the reserve. Um, so uh, yeah, I think now that our kids obviously are growing up in a city, um, showing them that, you know, there are other ways of life other than the city and everything that they're sort of involved in now, uh, is part of being rad. So how do you, how do you bring that personality into your parent parenting journey? And maybe how do you, you talked about sort of growing up on the reserve. Now you're living in the city. How do you bring that to your, to your children, your experiences growing up? Um, well, to, to answer the first part, I think, I think it's important not to overthink it. I think it's important just to be yourself and those natural elements will reveal themselves. They'll come out. Your kids will uh, receive them, you know, both directly and indirectly. Right. Um, and I think that a big part of that is being true to yourself and, and not, you know, putting up any sort of fronts about who you are. Um, because uh, kids are so smart, they can see through anything, right? Even at four and one and a half, mm -hmm. which my kids are now, you know? Uh, so yeah, I think being true to yourself, I think will come out naturally and your kids will absorb that in good ways. 
in terms of like bringing my own upbringing into the picture, um, you know, that requires a lot more effort. Uh, but one of the main reasons we moved to Sudbury was to be closer to our home communities. So Ottawa was a five is a five hour drive from my home community of Wasaxing First Nation. Right. Uh, but now we're only an hour and a half away. So we have a place. We built a cabin there uh, many years ago before nice. our kids were born. So and and a lot of my family still lives there. So we go down there and visit regularly. Um, and on the other side, in the other direction, um, my wife's home communities are a little bit farther, but we still take them there to visit with, you know, their their grandparents and their aunts and uncles and everything, too. You know, so um, so for me, yeah, it's an entirely different kind of uh, childhood uh, when you compare being in a city like Sudbury to the reserve where I'm originally from. Uh, but having that exposure for them is important for me and having that place accessible to them and their family accessible to them, I think is, is the next best thing, you know, um, even though they can't grow up there like I did, uh, at the same time, they know the place, they know the family, they know the roots. And of course, our younger guy is not as aware of this yet, right. but he, he will grow up with that influence, you know, and, and that makes me proud. That makes me happy. Of course, I would ideally like to raise them there. But, um, you know, that's just not in the cards at the moment. Uh, but maybe a few years on the line, we'll, we'll explore some options. You kind of mentioned, you know, things like um, teachings from, from family and from, uh, from elders. And I've read some, some things that you've written on your website as well about that. Like, how, how do you sort of incorporate that sort of that historical um, past um, into your parenting? How has that shaped you as a parent? And, and how do you work that into your approach as a parent? Yeah, that's, that's really fun to try to figure out. Because, <laughs> um, again, if you overthink it, I, I think you're going to stress yourself out, right? So I just consider the examples that I was raised with, you know, and it was really being around tangible things and being involved in specific activities like ceremonies that really did it for me, you know? So it could be something as simple as pulling out the hand drum and singing some songs or having a smudge, like burning like a mm -hmm. traditional medicine, like sage or sweetgrass and, you know, uh, doing that with our kids. Um, because behind every action, behind every ceremony or every song is a story, is, is a lesson. So we take those sort of, they're teachable moments essentially, right? Um, and we use those to show them what their culture is, um, who they are as Nishnabek, um, what is available to them. And a big part of it is making time for uh, their family, like their elder family members who um, do have a strong sense of culture and of history. Uh, and make sure that they spend time with them, not necessarily like to hear the big long stories or to hear any sort of uh, comprehensive explanations or descriptions of culture and history, but just to be around those people, mm -hmm. right, to establish those relationships and let them know that these people are there for them to teach them about who they are as, as Nishnabek, right? Uh, and that's that's really how I learned, you know, I learned by being immersed in the culture, uh, by growing up in my community, and by knowing that I can go to my elders for guidance um, whenever I need to, right? So it's, it's, a, it's, it's a way of like paying that forward and keeping that circle strong in many ways. Can you speak to um, your children's names and how, yeah. how those sort of came about? 
Yeah, for sure. Well, when when I was coming into this world, uh, when my mother was pregnant for me, uh, both my parents were living in Ottawa. They were both going to university at the time. Um, and they were they were young, much younger than uh, I was when I had my first kids. They were just in their early 20s. Uh, but they decided that they wanted to start the family to raise their kids in my dad's home community. And my mom's uh, of settler descent. She's a white Canadian. Uh, but this was something that was very important to her as well. So they made the decision to drop out of university and go to Wisoxic and start life there. Um, and a part of that was deciding to raise their kids with Nishnabe names. So they went to my grandmother, my father's mother, and said, you know, we want to give our kid who's coming uh, a name in the language. And uh, she suggested giving me uh, my great grandfather's name, uh, which is Wabagijik. And if you translate that you know, directly, it sort of means like white sky, mm -hmm. uh, but it also refers to the color of the sky before the sun comes up. So I was born in 1979. I'm 42 years old. And I grew up in the 80s and 90s with this firm connection to my culture, my language, my community and my family. You know, every time I speak my name and introduce myself. Right. I am paying homage to all those connections. And, you know, I, I, I've never taken that for granted. I've always been very serious about it. There were times when I was younger when I'd be teased about my name by kids sure. who, you know, weren't familiar with the culture of the language. And, and I would be frustrated then. Um, but what prevailed always was this sense of, of awareness and, and of understanding. And, and I just love that I was able to grow up that way. You know, that I always say that, you know, the greatest gift my parents gave me besides life itself was my name, because cool. every day it's kept me connected to my my culture and my people, and my community. And I wanted the same thing for my kids. And my wife was obviously very dedicated to that as as well as as someone who's also of Anishinaabe descent. She wanted to make sure our kids had Anishinaabe names. So we did something similar. Um, I when she was pregnant with our first guy, I gave my dad an offering of tobacco and I said, you know, can you please um, find a name for our, our child? And he said, yeah, absolutely. You know, he'd be honored to. So at that time, my grandmother was still alive and he sort of consulted with her and uh, she advised the name Jequis. And if you translate that directly, it, it can mean like a big brother or firstborn or, or older son, right? But it's also a reference to a character in some really old stories, really old Nishinaabe okay. stories. Uh, so Majikwis uh, was the older brother of a character named Nanabojo. And uh, these are really long stories. I, I won't get into the, the details of those, <laughs> but uh, that's how we got the name Jequis for okay. our older son. And our second son, the same thing. I, I said to my dad, you know, here's some tobacco. Can you please, um, you know, find a name for us? Uh, we both did, obviously, my wife and I. And uh, same thing. He came up with Yabe, which which sort of means like um, like buck, you know, like male okay. deer. Yep. Yeah. And, and, you know, that was inspired by a dream he had. Uh, so um, that's how those names came along. And um, yeah, it was influenced and inspired by my own upbringing. That's so cool um, to be able to involve your dad and, and your grandmother and other family members in that sort of process of finding a name for your child. That's must create such a, I guess, strengthen that bond. Yeah, for right? sure. Through that and, process. And yeah. And, you know, like I tell the story of my name and they'll be able to tell the stories of their names growing up. Another bonus is it 
took the pressure off us as parents <laughs> to come true. up with names, right? <laughs> so we weren't up uh, losing sleep over what to call our kids because we knew that when they were born, my dad would visit and give them their names, right? So it's pretty cool. Right. So we maybe touched on this a little bit, but your dad, like what, what was your relationship like with your dad sort of growing up and how has that um, impacted, I guess, your, your parenting today? Uh, my dad and I are very close. Uh, we always have been, um, you know, I have two younger brothers and, you know, we've, he's always been close with them as well. Uh, he had a very difficult childhood himself in that his dad died tragically when my dad was only about five years old. Oh, wow. um, so he, he essentially got drunk and fell out of a boat and, and drowned. Right. And left my grandmother to wow. raise five kids on her own uh, on the reserve. And she later adopted two more kids. Um, but what's always really interesting to consider about my grandmother is this was in the 1960s, you know, sort of at the peak of Indigenous child apprehension in Canada. Yeah. So there was the risk of, you know, this single mother having five children and all these kids being taken away either to residential school or as part of the 60s scoop into the child right. welfare system, right? Uh, somehow she was able to resist that. And I think, you know, my theory is, you know, having known my grandmother very well, is that she really established herself as a firm community member, not just in Wasoxing, where we're from, but also in Perry Sound, Ontario, the okay. adjacent town. Um, so she was a strong advocate. She was very political. And I think uh, people just generally didn't want to mess with her, right? <laughs> she was a really strong Nishnabe woman. So because of that, her, her kids weren't taken away from her. But my dad tells me stories about when he was a kid, she used to tell them, uh, if you see a car with white men come into the community, run into the bush because they might be oh. here to take you away. Um, and that was real. That was a real thing. These could have been, you know, the Indian agents or, you know, child welfare workers or whoever else um, coming to take the kids away. Right. Um, so he, my dad had that really difficult upbringing, you know, raised by a single mother with all the pressures and abuses of the colonial system all around him at, at all times. Right. So, you know, he, I think, didn't necessarily have a template to follow of being a father. Um, and he really had to figure it out all on his own. And, right. and, you know, he was 24 when I was born. So qu quite a young man considering. Um, and, you know, I think he worked really hard to find a way to raise me and my brothers in, in a good way. Uh, and also to use the culture that he was reconnecting with um, as part of his guidance, you know, to do that. And a big part of that was sort of pushing back against sort of Western notions of what being a yeah. father is, which are very macho in many ways, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's be tough, you know, don't show emotion, um, you know, don't do the sort of uh, womanly things, quote unquote, like right. changing diapers or pushing carriages or anything like that. Um, so I think he, he wanted to, in many ways, reclaim what some indigenous um, virtues around fatherhood were. And I think we were raised in, in a more, I guess, inclusive and I think positive way. Uh, so that for me set that, I guess, set me on my path to fatherhood, you know, seeing that as an example. Um, but he really had to do that a lot on his own to figure that out. At the same time, hugely supported by my mother, you know, like, right. 
my mother was there to join him on this journey of cultural reclamation, re reclamation as a white woman, you know, and um, I, I give her equal credit for how we were raised because um, she wanted to ensure we had that influence as well. Um, so yeah, those, you know, both of my parents, you know, taught me how to be a father, but also it was people like, like my grandmother that I mentioned and my grandparents, my mother's parents mm -hmm. and all, all our aunts and uncles, because, um, that whole generation really came together at a time when like reconciliation wasn't even part of the right. national vocabulary at all, but they came together as Anishinaabe and, and Canadian families to ensure that, you know, us as kids and all our cousins grew up together in, in a happy way, you know? Um, and I always feel very fortunate for that. Uh, and, and that's sort of the example that I try to follow with my own kids. I love that. Um, how, how has becoming a father changed you? Um, geez, in so many ways, you know, <laughs> uh, I think it's uh, definitely made me more patient. Um, you know, I, I try to consider myself as a patient person in general, uh, but, you know, it, it has taught me really to uh, savor the time that I do have. Um, and for me, part of that is, I think, pushing back against the standards I set for myself in my professional career, because I essentially worked two careers for almost 20 years, right, right. As, a, as a journalist and a, as an author. But having kids really showed me that it's important to slow things down and to savor the moments, um, even when, you know, they're screaming at 3 a.m. Because, right. <laughs> uh, you know, we're not going to get those times back, right? Even, even as challenging as some of those times are. Um, but it's also taught me to be more open-minded about the world and to really, um, I think, uh, be open to learning from my own children uh, because they are the ultimate teachers. You know, I am learning every day from them, not just about life itself, but about myself as a person, about, you know, childhood development, because mm -hmm. you see that on a daily basis. Um, but also about the importance of creating a good future because you have the future basically running around in front of you, you know? Yeah. And like, if you can't, be inspired and find dedication to forge a better, healthy future for us all as a society, um, then I don't know why you would want to be a parent if you don't see those beautiful things in, in your own life right in front of you, you know? So they inspire me to be a better person and to try to be a better community member and citizen of this earth. You know, uh, so, um, you know, these are things I always took seriously before, but I take them way more seriously now. And it's just a reminder every day of how important these moments are and, and these relationships that we build are, you know, it's so totally, yeah, totally easy to get wrapped up in your, yourself, right. Mm -hmm. And in this, in this world, mm -hmm. um, and and lose maybe perspective, like you're talking about, about the big picture. Yeah. Right? And kids are so good for putting those things in perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Not easy. Right? No, not, not easy. No. Um, we talked about, yeah, patience, right? Learning patience. That's, that's one I feel like is <laughs> you're, you're yeah. always having to work on. Yeah. <laughs> um, they're very good at testing it, but yeah. The other thing is like, uh, like more um, like audible sort of ear care, you know, like, 
man, I, I would go to shows in Toronto when I was living there, like at the Opera House or at Lee's Palace, you know, seeing like bands like High on Fire or the Dillinger Escape Plan and, yeah. and never wear earplugs, right? And yeah. just sort of take that for granted. But the volume coming from these children, man, sometimes it's <laughs> like it dwarfs all that stuff that yeah. I heard before, you know? So it's like, oh man, I'm 42 now and I really got to, you know, make sure I can still hear these guys when I'm 52, right? So... But yeah, that's the volume. <laughs> yeah, it's so funny. I'm the same way. Yeah, I feel like I totally ruined my my ears earlier in life, and I'm always like, "What? What?" <laughs> um, yeah, and so you're. I guess you're. To get back to maybe some of the conversation we had before in terms of your individuality, you sort of talked about uh, music being important to you. Um, so I know, sort of, you know, through our mutual online acquaintances and things like that, you're into you know metal and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So how do let me ask you how do you sort of show that to your kids or how do you um i guess introduce that idea you're probably not sitting down and putting master of puppets on and like getting your <laughs> 16 month old to listen but yeah um but how do you how do you sort of work that in <clears throat> well um a big part of it is having music on all the time um yeah. and that's just something that i've always done uh sort of have music going in the background um whether it's like doing the dishes or actually working or whatever else uh so you know i try to switch it up and like we're fortunate this day and age that we have like you know spotify or apple music accounts and we can put on any sort of stream right any sort of genre so that's that's basically what i do you know i'll put on the classic rock genre i'll put on the hip-hop genre or, or what else whatever else and then our son our older son jequist if he says oh i like this song uh, i have a separate playlist for him okay. so i'll say you know do you want me to put this on your playlist and he'll say yeah um so it's funny like i'll pull up his playlist now on my phone and it's this this so totally random mishmash of things you know it's like acdc yeah. um Bowie, uh, he really likes Bowie, cool. The Weeknd, The Ramones, Green Day, The Ghostbusters theme, you know, <laughs> Rise Against, MIA, yeah. Red Hot Chili Peppers. Uh, so like that's sort cool. of, I wouldn't say it's a strategy, but I just want to ensure that he uh, is exposed to these things and he can find what he likes. And that's what my parents did for me. You know, they would put on cassettes of like Willie Nelson or Neil Young or Joni Mitchell, uh, Pink Floyd, The Who, you know, um, just the stuff they were into back then, uh, Sly and the Family Stone, uh, Ray Charles, whatever else, right? Nice. And like at the time, you know, I wasn't really that interested in them, but, you know, that creates a good foundation. And I love all that stuff now, obviously, you know, but I think what that did for me was inspired me to seek out different kinds of music. And, you know, in my teens and and sort of into my early 20s, I, I listened to basically all of it, you know, and when I moved to Toronto for university, man, it was like uh, the world being my oyster kind of thing, right? So it's like there's all kinds of live music happening all the time. And it was just so exciting, you know, back in the late 90s, early 2000s yeah. to be a part of that. Um, so yeah, I, I give credit to my parents again for just making sure I had an open mind, uh, to music. Um, and eventually that, you know, evolved into the heavier stuff, you know? So. Yeah. I love that idea of creating a playlist. Um, and then those moments, cause we have those two where I, my kids don't love the music that I listen to, but I kind of every once in a while force it on them a little bit, yeah. right? In the car, like they're like, oh, let's put on something different. I'm like, no, we're yeah. going to listen to this for now. But yeah. then they'll pick up on some song or some chorus or whatever that they're like, oh, I like that. Yeah. I love that idea of just like right in that moment, let's pop yeah. that on a playlist for them. Cause um, 
Yeah, I, I guess there's a tendency, I think, with with kids, or at least I feel this sometimes for me, like to just put on sort of what's easy, what they like. But it's yeah. so rewarding when they start to identify with a song that you really love, right? Yeah. Like you kind of mm-hmm. share that that experience with them. Yeah, so that's cool. Oh. Yeah, the, the 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 funny thing is is Bowie. Like, um, he, he for some reason Jeekwas has just really gravitated towards David Bowie. And we went to the record store here in Sudbury a couple months ago, and there were Bowie records on the wall. And he was like, "Oh, look, David Bowie records!" And there were other people in the record store. And man, I felt like the coolest dad for yeah. a couple minutes there because like <laughs> he recognized the Bowie records, right? So it was cool. That's awesome. <laughs> That's awesome. Um. What's next for you? What, what are you working on these days? I, I have some idea about what you're working on, but what, let's tell the listeners and viewers what, what's coming next for you. Sure. Well, I am currently deep into uh, the next draft of my next novel. It's called Moon of the Turning Leaves, uh, and it is the sequel to my last novel, Moon of the Crested Snow. Uh, so if all goes according to schedule, it will be out about a year from now. So okay, in the fall cool. of 2022. So that is pretty much my focus for the next probably for the the entire fall and winter is to just get these subsequent drafts done so that we can sort of put the book to bed. Um, But it's, you know, I don't want to jinx anything, knock on wood, but uh, my editor and I are are both pretty excited about how it's taking shape. Um, And, you know, we are both really stoked to get the story out there. So yeah, that is mainly what I'm doing now. Um, You know, just some other random uh, writing gigs on the side. Um, And also uh, a friend of mine, uh, her name's Jennifer David, uh, and I, we do a podcast called Story Keepers. Right. And it's it's sort of a monthly book club podcast focused on indigenous literature. So um, yeah, those are the things I'm up to at the moment. Awesome. So I want to um, just quickly touch on your book, Moon of the Crusted Snow. So for people who haven't, uh, or maybe aren't aware of your book, can you just give like a little, um, I guess, brief rundown of maybe what the book's about? Because you're working on the sequel right now. My understanding is you never sort of planned a sequel, <laughs> but it was a very well-received book. Yeah. Uh, it's very cool. Um, I'm sort of halfway through it right now. We were talking before, um, and, and it's just awesome. So yeah, maybe give us the little, uh, rundown of Moon of the Crested Snow. Yeah, sure. And thanks a lot for reading it. I really appreciate that. Uh, Moon of the Crested Snow is basically a post-apocalyptic story from the perspective of a Northern Ontario first nation. And this community experiences what they find out to be a world ending blackout. Uh, but because they are in the north and they are sort of more closely connected to the land, uh, some of the community members are able to adapt uh, more easily to this crisis than others. But then out of the blue, some characters come up from a city to the south uh, and look to impose their will upon the people and essentially take over the community. So it you know, becomes, uh, you know, an exacerbated crisis in that the community has to make some decisions about what to do about these outsiders while trying to survive at the same time. So it's about the moment of collapse and what a community decides to do. Uh, So yeah, it it was mostly inspired by the big blackout of the summer of 2003. Um, Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, just also being a fan of post-apocalyptic or dystopian literature since I was a teenager, right? I always wanted to write one of those stories of my own. 
so yeah, I wrote it mo- more or less as a one-off. Um, and I just sort of left that story to be because the, I was sort of done with it. Right. Mm-hmm. I, I had set out what I aspired to do in creating this story. Uh, but fortunately for me, very fortunately, uh, there was a lot of buzz around it. It was very well received. Um, people started asking about a sequel and, uh, as the sort of years went on, it's been out for three years now. Um, uh, my agent said, you got to give the people what you want, <laughs> you know, <laughs> come up with a sequel. Uh, if you come up with a good idea, I'll find you a book deal. And, and that's sort of what happened. But the way that all came together meant that, uh, I couldn't fit that into my career as a CBC radio host. So I had to make the decision to leave, uh, CBC, right. um, but, you know, that was all obviously carefully planned. You know, I, I lined up a lot of other work uh, in the lead up to my actual departure from CBC. Uh, so to give a little hint about the sequel, uh, it picks up about 10 years after the end of the first book. And the community in the first book, one detail about it is the people who inhabit it were originally um, placed, well, they originally lived in sort of the Georgian Bay area where I'm originally from, but part of the story is they were displaced to far Northern Ontario. So in part two, they want to go back to their homelands, but also see what's left of the world after the end kind of thing. Right. So it's more or less a quest story. Um, it's at this point, it's much, much longer <laughs> than the first book. Okay. Uh, so there's a lot more editing that we're going to have to do, but um, I very much see it as a bonus story. Like for me, I wasn't planning on writing it and it was just super fun to get into and sort of revisit and bring these characters back to life. And it sounds weird to say, yeah, it was fun to write, you know, more about the end of the world, right. <laughs> the chaos that follows kind of thing. But um, yeah, I just feel very fortunate and, and blessed that uh, my path has led me here and that, you know, people want to see what's next for these characters. Yeah. And the character, we were talking about this before we sort of got started. The character development is so good. It's like this slow burn in the beginning. It's like a, you know, really good sort of thriller almost where you're you just know something's coming right you kind of fall in love with these characters uh right off the beginning so um yeah i can't wait um oh, thanks for the yeah. next book um where can people find you online if they want to check out your your work um or your podcast sure uh well i guess the easiest place to find me is on social media so i'm on twitter at wab that's at w-a-u-b I'm on Instagram with the same handle at WAUB. Uh, you can find my page on Facebook at Wabgijik Rice, my full name. I do have a website. It's just wab.ca that hasn't been updated in about a year though. So I got to, you know, get some blog posts up there just to let people know what's up. Um, and yeah, the Storykeepers podcast, you can find it on pretty much most podcast platforms. Uh, the website is storykeeperspodcast.ca. So you can get an idea of the books that we, we discussed there. Um, and I think that's it. I think that's basically the extent of my uh, digital footprint. Cool. Well, I really appreciate you spending some time with me this morning, um, chatting about parenthood, chatting about your experience as a dad, talking about some of your work, any message that you want to leave for dads out there listening or maybe dads to be? Yeah. Well, thanks, Brett. I really enjoyed this conversation with you. Um, I'm very honored to have had this experience. Um, I I think it's really fun uh, to talk about uh, parenthood, uh, fatherhood specifically. Uh, My message to other, uh, I guess, new dads or dads-to-be is um, to really, I think, 
consider the community that you're a part of and understand that you don't necessarily have to go it alone, um, that there are other dads and other moms who can be there for you. And even if you can't reach out to those people in real life, you know, look for them online. Um, I have found a lot of support online when I needed it. And I think having that community sense in mind really pushes us forward to the future and makes us cognizant of the relationships we're creating too. I think because at the core level of parenthood, you know, and there's a lot wrong with our world, right? There are a lot of differences that people sort of get up in arms about. And, you know, it's, it's tough, especially for, you know, Black and Indigenous people mm -hmm. uh, who are dealing with racism. Um, but I think when we see each other as counterparts, not just as parents, but as fellow community members, I think we have a good understanding of where we can go together, right? And that's the example that was set for me from a very early age, coming from a reserve that's beside a town that had, you know, some unfavorable sort of perspectives of our own community uh, on the reserve, right? So, uh, yeah, it's just considering that community building that you can do and just how parenthood is a good way into that and how fostering those relationships that result from that camaraderie is a really cool thing. And it's a really special thing. And I think we can really grab hold of that to figure out what we're going to do in the future, because, you know, our kids are going to have a lot of challenges ahead of them. You know, if we think mm -hmm. about issues like climate change or potential future pandemics, you know, because there will be more coming down the line. I think setting that example for them as as good neighbors um, is going to help them create a good future, you know? So yeah, so to boil that all back down into sort of a cohesive, concise message is just that, you know, uh, be a good community member, both as a parent and as a neighbor. Look for support and provide support. Look for support and provide support. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, don't, you know, don't be afraid to have the conversations, you know, and I think as men specifically, you know, as, mm -hmm. as cis hetero men, you know, we've been really um, shaped by sort of macho Western culture around us. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with being a strong you know, tough dad, but at the same time, you do have to balance that with the vulnerability that your children need to see, you know, mm -hmm. the fully formed, balanced human beings that we are, uh, our children deserve to see that, uh, they need to see that in order to grow up as balanced, you know, well-rounded people too. So yeah, sure. Be a tough guy, dad, but at the same time, show your kids, uh, your own weaknesses too, because that's important for them to see. And, um, yeah, that's, I, I think, good examples that we can set as, as hu human beings. Love that. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time, Wav. It's really great to meet you. I appreciate you uh, taking time out of your day. All right, that was Wavgisha Grice on the Rad Dad Show. Now, before you do anything else, go out and buy his book. It's so good. Moon of the Crested Snow. He's working on the sequel right now. Can't wait. Thank you so much, Wav, for joining us. That was fun. And thank you for listening. If you liked this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you drop us a review on iTunes. And if you're looking for more Rad Dads content, find us wherever you get your podcasts or give us a follow on social media. On Instagram, you can find us at at rad underscore dads underscore show. And on Facebook and Twitter at at rad dads show. And now you can also look us up on YouTube for some video interviews as well, including this one. 
Lastly, Rad Dads is first and foremost a community organization aimed at positive parenting, and you can check out what we do over at raddadsyeg.com. That's raddadsyeg.com. Thanks for tuning in. In the meantime and in between time, stay rad.